I'm Chase. And I'm Timothy. And this is Customer Service. Customer service podcast. I like whenever I do that. I include include podcast. Podcast. Yeah. You're now live with the hosts, Timothy and Chase. How are we doing, big dog? You know what? The it's good that we aren't on NPR because we can't do it. We're not this is not our natural state. No. I also don't think like a lot of guys on NPR like discuss converge a lot or anything. No. You know what I mean? Like what's up? No. It's probably just not our demographic. No, I mean I would assume I would assume the craziest thing Ira Glass does in a day is he might get some extra hot sauce. Although I bet you know what? I bet he has a personality built around tea much like you. So that, that You know might... Ira Glass could be have a personality built around tea. He probably He's like, oh, look how dastardly of me. I got another side of my Caesar dressing with my sweet green. You know what I mean? That, that's about as wild as he gets in a day. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, no I shade, kinda, though. I kind of like it. Yeah, no yeah. shade, no shade. I get it. All right. We always do this. We get clowning around too yeah, much before, a, before, especially before a good guest. So we, I don't want us to get de- derailed here. Yeah. Today is a is a, it's a, we're we're welcoming back a guest into 2024. We've been guestless for a little bit. Just mm-hmm. got busy, got doing things around here. I think we'll we just like know. doing solo ones, so yeah, it wasn't yeah. a problem. But this was a really awesome way to to get back into this. So we have Josh Peskowitz on today. Yeah, this is a really good conversation, guys. Yeah, like, in terms of like you know everybody likes when we have a, a a guest and talks about getting into the industry, their starts, kind of like in unusual career path. A lot of people think it's so linear. You do this, you do that, mm-hmm. and then you shake a hand and then you're making a lot of money and you're successful and you're doing the job you want to want that you want to do. And it's yeah. just never really that straightforward or very rarely that straightforward. Yeah, I think the sentiments are like and the advice is oftentimes straightforward if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but the way you get there and the way you get that information yes. is not. Yeah, agreed. So, it's 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 a it's a it's an interesting career path to listen to. I mean, this guy has had his fingers in a lot of what you know and love in fashion. Um it's a it's it's a really I mean to have that much perspective in a career is really incredible mm-hmm. and and uh and I envy that. Um so it was it was really cool to pick his brain and 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 chat longer. I mean, we always say that it's really cool to get a chance to just talk to really inspiring people for an hour. Um so we're it's why we like doing this so much. So this is one of those times and uh really like I'd encourage you if you're going to listen to this one, uh pay a little attention cuz he's got really good mm-hmm. pieces of information that that he lays out in a really like nice, you know, comprehensive way. If you are thinking about working in this industry or want to, it's another good listen. And then most importantly, though, stay till the end. He asks, we ask one last question that mm-hmm. I think is maybe one of the more succinct and um, interesting ways to answer the question of like, you know, why things are expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just and it's a really it's a it's a great like uh, it's a great like last 10 minutes to the episode yeah, so it. so make sure you stick around to the end because it's 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 well worth your time um he's an awesome guy he's an awesome guest uh, unless you got anything else let's let's jump right in yep let's uh, hop into it how old is your dog um Beth midler we think is seven years old she's a rescue um from puerto rico Oh wow! And yes, we uh, we adopted her during the pandemic, and I know that a lot of people uh, adopted animals during the pandemic. But she was, we had an older dog named David Bowie who uh, had who lived a very long life, but was you know 
getting towards the the final stages and my wife was like yo we need to have a backup dog <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, listen, listen pal i just so, lost my dog and i i, I oh, feel man. you man and it's and i also respect the naming oh it's all right man he was an old dog and he lived a, he lived a really good shout life, out jeff so. we love jeff yeah so but i've also always named my animals after celebrities as well so like yeah. jeff was jeff rowley after the skateboarder who i loved when i was a kid <laughs> and then yeah. i had uh uh oscar de la hoya and I had, uh, who was the other, I'm trying to think of the other one that was named after a, oh, I had Tom York because I had a cat with a lazy eye. Nice. Uh, so, we, have yeah. a, we have a cat as well. Um, his name is Turkey. Um, oh, that's a good name. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of those things where um, in, in, a, in, a previous, in a previous part of my life, in a previous relationship, my, um, that, that cat was adopted while I was in Hong Kong. Mm. And I you know, got the whole spiel. And then I said, okay, well, what's his name? And they were like, well, the name from the shelter is Tucker. And I was like, we, you can get all the way the hell out of here with that. Yeah. yeah we're yeah, not, yeah, having we're not doing Tucker. Tucker in house. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was the right decision. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we, we, I named him Turkey um, because, you know, cats, cats actually understand a bit of phonetics. And so, you know, it was close enough. I thought that he would respond to it. And, you know, 12 years later, uh, he's still with me. He's still my ward. And um, his name is Turkey. That's Good that's shit. that's what that is. Yeah. yeah. Just where do you live at? I live in Manhattan. Okay. Cool. Cool. Have you always lived there? I have not always lived in Manhattan. Um, I've also lived in Brooklyn, which is where I was born. Mm. Um, I've lived in Washington D.C., um, where I did the majority of my schooling. Okay. Um, and I lived in L.A. for three years, and I lived in London and I lived in Paris uh, while I was in college. I did a semester in both, but that's the extent of places I've lived. I've lived uh, mostly downtown uh, in New York for, for most of my life um, mm. or in Brooklyn, uh, but now I live a little farther north. Gotcha. Nice. Uh, what was uh, when? When would you like? What years would you have been living in DC? The nineties. Shit. Good music. Yeah. Airtime there. Big time music, go go music, uh, yeah. hardcore scene was really yeah. tough thing. Although go go was a little bit more my speed. Um, although my high school girlfriend's older brother was in a band called God, what was the name of that band? Uh, it was like a hardcore band. It was a hardcore band. They were called uh, they were called Corm or something like that. And they oh, used to man. open for oh, what, what was the big hardcore band from DC in the nineties? Um, Bad Brains, Minor Threat, Minor Threat. Minor threat yeah. yeah, Minor Threat. They used to open for Minor Threat. Damn. Uh, so sick. I would go to the hardcore <laughs> shows too, and I was just like, "Yo, this shit is like." I mean, but honestly, nothing was more hardcore than a go-go show in DC sure. in the nineties. Like just, that shit was terrifying. You know, it's funny. It's like all the scenes to me, like it doesn't matter what type of music it is or whatever. It's really just the energy of the scene. Uh Gogo had that. Obviously, the hardcore scene had that. I think modern like rap music is kind of like I I didn't really understand like the young like like Playboy Cardi and shit like that. And then I saw a live show Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, never mind. It's just it's just a hardcore scene. You know what I mean? It's the same stuff. It's just different kinds of music. Yeah. It, it, I mean, the energies, the energies. The I mean, I remember early in early in my career, I was at the Fader. Uh, I worked. That was the first magazine I worked at, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about this kind of stuff. But <laughs> I remember going to uh, the first show that the Mars Bolta performed in, in New York. Oh. Wow. Um, and one of my co-editors had just had her uh, her, her son, um, 
named Raul. He's in college. I think he just graduated college. Like, this is how long ago that was. Um, but she brought him to the Mars Volta show. And, Hell like, yeah. just the place was just absolutely bedlam. And he slept through the whole thing. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just like, I couldn't believe it. You know, like, obviously, the the, the child of two music editors. Uh, um, but, you know, he, he slept through that Mars Volta show. And that shit was on fire. We put them on the cover of, I, I think that was probably, like, issue... 14 or 15 of the fader. Oh my God. That's anyway. so cool. One of my first concerts, yeah, this was early ago. on with my uncle. I saw at the drive-in, which is like, you know, the kind of the predecessor to Mars Volta, which was the, which was the, yeah. which was the band. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the progenitor band. of. Yeah, of and Mars it's like, Volta. I think Mars Volta was more the fully formed version of what they wanted to be, but that the energy of at the drive-in, especially at the time when like, that's not what was going on in music. You know what I mean? Especially performatively. And it was like, it was electric. You know what I mean? I was a kid and I saw that and it was, it really like that, whether you like them or not, the, that performance has stuck with me all these years later. I still think of like one of the best live shows I've ever seen was like those guys just like imploding on stage. It's crazy. Oh, 100%. I mean, like the energy level was just, was just absolutely mind boggling. And I think that honestly, that was the last show that I was on, that I, that I was on a floor, like ever since then. Yeah. Like I was in my early twenties and I was just like, yo, this, uh, I need to sit down. <laughs> Listen, I think that we need to accept in a live venue. I, look, and I love live music. It's really important to me. Like I said, we we're both from the Midwest and we grew up in the hardcore scene. People get annoyed that we keep bringing that up, yeah. but it's, it's like important to like who, you know, it's like weirdly important to who we it's are. It's kind of how he and I connected initially yeah. too. Like, yeah. So it's like, and, and it's like, honestly how I technically got into clothes and everything. So it's really important to me. And, 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 you know, they build community. That's what we're trying to do here. Like I, every aspect of it's important, but like, and but when sometimes you tell people like oh I grew up in like I played in punk bands or hardcore and they're like oh yeah I don't really like that kind of I'm like I don't think it really even matters if you like the music or connected with the music it's like that it's just the scene and the electricity and the live performance yeah. that also being said we got to put chairs in every place <laughs> we can't we can't be yeah. doing this anymore when I go to shows every- I'm trying I'm trying to tap my foot I'm not trying to like uh-huh. yes. my knees up you know what I mean hundred uh, percent yeah I'm definitely of that school but listen I mean hardcore hardcore punk you know look. Is it like the genre of music that I that that I was that I was like sort of birthed into? No, uh, but I have a lot of respect for all the things you just mentioned, and I mean, you really can't beat it for like that that like positive. I mean, you know, I always mm-hmm, think of the Bad mm-hmm. Brains DC again, sure. but you know, like that PMA, you know, like that yeah. that that really shown through, and you know, just like the sense of community. Even when people are kicking each other in the face, they still you know lean down to pick them up you know and yeah, that, i always yeah. i always enjoyed that that energy and i mean listen if you like music one of the reasons if you like contemporary music and when i say contemporary music i don't mean like you know um kenny g i mean like music made in the last <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean like music made in like the last you know 50 or 60 years the reason you like it is because of the rhythm and you know that's what the, that's what moves the body that's what gives you the the sense of you know like coordination between the 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 the, the people on stage that are performing the crowd you know like how you drive your car is different depending on what song is playing right like all those things that comes from the rhythm and like if you can't recognize that there's a complicated and and really uh um a compelling uh rhythm language to hardcore and and punk music then you're deaf 
100 I mean 100 percent and like that's that's the thing when it's like I, I also think anybody that says like oh I can't really get into this or you know that's not really my style of music or whatever I'm like you're just not digging that hard which I don't look not everyone's gonna yeah, you know uh, you know I love movies and music but I'm not I'm not a huge reader admittedly so I know that there's stuff that I'm just I haven't connected to the right stuff on you know so I mostly just read music and movie biographies and things like that but like but mm-hmm. like you know it's just you're not digging hard enough like if you're not if because I think there's in any genre there's so much depth there especially now more than ever that like you're just not you're not listening hard enough you're not you're not making the, the you're mm-hmm. not doing the work mm-hmm. that, that music does kind of take sometimes so I, I totally agree it's just it, it's like it it it, it kind of lives in everyone it's just how you're like connecting to it that's that's the difference so it's interesting how so you worked at the fader i knew that what was did you get your start in music then start in music no i mean I mean, music was always a really big part of yeah. my life and my family. Um, my brother, I have an older brother, and he is like three years older than me. And so when I was really young, um, he got very interested in hip hop. And yeah. like when I say young, I mean like we're talking about. I don't want to give away my age here, but like we're talking about the mid to late eighties. Yeah. And so I mean, that killer was time the, to be into that too. Yeah. I mean like that was the beginning of it. Right. And so, I mean from like, you know, like outside of the parks in the Bronx. Right. So that's, that's what we would listen to. That's what he would listen to. And so at a very young age, I mean, I'll put it to you like this, the two records that I think probably defined my early childhood the most were, Cool G Rap and DJ Polo, Roads to Riches, which came out in 1988. So I was seven years old and my brother made me use my allowance to buy it for him. (laughs) Big brother. And the soundtrack to The Muppet Show. So like when you think about like the juxtaposition of those two records Uh and like those were the two records that I, and when I say records, I mean like actual wax records. Like that's Mm -hmm. what I listened to the most before I turned 10 years old. And so you know, that really informed my taste in music. And then unlike many other parents, my father recognized the, what was going on with hip hop and actually listened to it himself. Like, you know, when we were going back from DC to Brooklyn to see the family, like when we were crossing the Barrazano bridge, he would always put it on no sleep till Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, by the beastie boy, you know, like that kind of thing. And, you know, but he but he was very, very conscientious of saying, like, okay, you guys like this, but you need to know where it came from. Sure. And so he would play us, you know, the soul records. He would play us the reggae tunes. He would play us, you know, the classic rock, you know, like the things that were being referenced by by this by this genre that was being they're, they're not even referenced, it was being directly sampled by it. And and you know, so we we ended up, I ended up having like a very, a very, a very strong education in popular music really early in my life. Um, I remember when my brother first tried to take my dad's car for a joyride and I got a shotgun, we turned on the car <laughs> and my dad had the juice soundtrack playing <laughs> like in the tape deck. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was, it was yeah. just, like no, the ledge came on by cool. I was like, what? You know, like, so this is, this, this is, this is what was going on. Um, 
in my house. And so, you know, that was really, that was the music that I found most compelling in my life. Now, I think later, um, really, I guess you could say it coincided with, with, with going to, going to work at the Feta. I was exposed to so much more. I mean, this was during the electro clash era. Yeah. This was like the downtown rock scene, you know, the strokes had just come out with their first record. You know, you got the, you got the stills, you got the, the the shins you got you know all those uh, huge the time in like that. for music in new york too specifically yeah, even the, yeah the the mooney suzuki uh yeah. radio four like all these bands and so i was going to see them all you know uh i was going to see all those bands um regularly and Sick. and so you know like you you and i mean i was living in downtown new york i was working for a, a magazine that i would say not controversially was sort of setting the tone for what was going on in 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 most music scenes at that oh, of time? Course, yeah, um, yeah. So I got exposed to a lot more. I mean, you, if you'd ask twenty two year old me if I would enjoy listening to country music, the answer would be no. But now I do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not all country music, mind you, but of course, you know, I've, I have I have definitely found places where I find that music to be incredibly compelling. Of course. Um, yeah. So what what did you do at the Fader? I was the fashion editor. Oh, cool! Oh, right on. Great. Yeah. So, like, yeah. w- w- did you go to school for fashion? Or how do you how do you get into the fashion world? That's like that's a question that we hear more than anything. Yeah, here people at are always this, asking at the store, that studio, yeah. podcast, what you know. They always want to know how 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 you guys got into fashion or how I got into fashion. Everybody, yeah. you know, how you know, to get into fashion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in this um, okay. in this scenario, we'd like to know how you. Got yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, okay. So when I was living in Washington, this was like, and I started going to high school. This was, this was the early nineties. So again, telling my age, but there was, there was an, an incredibly important, um, sense of style to the communities that I went to high school with. Um, I went to an, I went to a very, 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 diversely populated high school it was overcrowded um there was a lot of different people from a lot of different you know walks of life that went there and it the impression that was made on me and like i think that this is really carried through my life was that the clothes that you wear matter and it's not in the sense that they are it, that's like a vapid thing or something mm-hmm. that like, Oh, look at, you know, Becky, look at her clothes, you know, like not, mm-hmm. not, not in that sense, but in the sense that, and I've refined this over time, but I, I think like in, 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 even in my youth, I recognized it, that, you know, humans are a visual species. Um, we're also a community based species we're tribal. Mm-hmm. And one of the first indicators that anyone gets of you is what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. you know, w- we are unique in many aspects of the hum- of the of the animal kingdom. We're still, hum- you know, humans are animals, but we are we are. We are unique in the fact that we get to choose. And we don't have feathers, we don't have antlers, we don't have, you know, uh, complex, you know, ritual displays to show our to show our, our you know, physical ability to you know be a good be a good mate 
yeah, um, yeah. or whatever that might be. But, you know, we have our clothes and we have, you know, if you got tattoos and like how you wear your hair, like these are the things. This is how you communicate who you are to other people. And I think that that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And in my high school, because of, you know, um, conditions that I think, you know, we don't really need to get into, but like what you wore really mattered. The brands that you wore mattered, how yeah. you styled yourself mattered. And like if you came to school wearing some busted sneakers and some off price and some off brand jeans, you probably weren't going to get a date and you were more than likely going to get made fun of. And so I, that registered with me really early. And, you know, like I started working at a clothing store when I was 16 years old. Um, in Washington, D.C., there was a small chain of stores called Up Against the Wall. Mm. And they were one of the first, they were one of the first stores that was really, um, and you can talk to other people in the business, like, and they'll tell you the same thing. But it was very influential in that space of like urban clothing. Um, and they had a number of outlets in the in the DC area. Um, I think at their I think at their biggest, which was probably the early two thousands, they had like nineteen stores in the Mid Atlantic and a few in in California. Oh damn! Um, and they sold, you know, they sold brands like on the men's side, you know. DKNY and Polo Sport and Stussy and Jinko Jeans and you know the, yeah. that, like those 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 types of brands eventually you know Mecca and Fat Farm and yada 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 and then on the women's side I mean it was mostly like going out tops and and stretchy jeans like Bongo and Parasuco and, and things like that but you know like this was this was where this is where DC got dressed. It's what's crazy and, to me is like the the list of brands that you mentioned seems so. I don't know. Maybe it's just because we're we're from the Midwest, but growing up, like I wanted to wear those brands so bad, and you couldn't mm-hmm. just get those. Like you had to be somewhere. Yeah. Go, like if my dad traveled to work, I'd be like, "Please go to the mall and look for these couple <laughs> of things. I'll take anything they've got." You yeah. know what I mean? Like because they were just so difficult yeah. to get. Yeah. So a place that was curating those, especially at that time, is hugely influential. So you're absolutely right. And uh, I worked there. I started working there when I was 16 years old because I wanted a pair of polo sports sweatpants. They were $125 for a pair yeah. of sweatpants at that time. It was crazy. It's still kind of crazy, but like really crazy at the time. And I just, I went to the manager of the store um, whose name was Wendy Brown. Oh, shout out Wendy. Um, of the particular one near me. And I said to her, I was just like, look, you know, you really should hire me. She said, why should you hire me? I was like, because if you hire me, then I get a discount and I will make sure that none of my friends steal shit from here. If you hire me. And she just looked me up and down. She's like, you got a lot of balls, (laughs) Um, but she hired me, you know, she hired me. And so I, I started working and, and, you know, eventually I ended up doing the window displays for about four or five of those locations. I did the floor merchandising because that's just, my brain worked in that way. Like yeah. I'm not very good at algebra, but I'm very good at geometry. So I could see the way things can and should fit together. And so they gave me those responsibilities and I, and I ran with it. They wanted me to stay. They didn't want me to go to college. They wanted me to stay <laughs> and they were going to give me like a, a managerial. They were like, we'll make you a manager. So I was like, I think I'm all set. You, um, and you, you said you were like 16 or 17 at the time, right? Yeah, I was. Hell yeah. I hadn't even turned 18 yet. They were like, we need to, you need to turn 18 for us to make you a manager. Mm, yeah. Um, and I didn't do that. Uh, I went to college and I got a degree in fashion merchandising from the University of Delaware. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that that was an actual thing that you could study um, until, you know, 
partway through my sophomore year, I was studying fine art and business, um, you know, with the intention of me opening my own store. Like, Uh that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, life took a different path, although I did open my own store eventually. But, you know, life took me on a different path. And and when I came to when I came back to New York after after school, uh, I I was really infatuated and, and sort of enamored with the idea of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I took a job. Uh, I was hired to be the window display guy and the floor merchandiser for uh, the first Urban Outfitters in New York City. Oh wow! And which was uh, which was called Waverly Place. Yeah. Um, it was there was more than one at that time, but this was this was the original location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smaller, smaller store. And I got that job. And that's what I was doing. And one of my best friends from college was interning at the fader uh, in the photo department. And by the photo department, I mean one person, right? Because there's like 10 people to put out the whole magazine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And he called me one day, and this was shortly after 9-11. And the person who had been the fashion editor at the fader um, is still somebody I'm friends with. He's a guy named Simonez Wolf. He lives in Paris now. Wow. Um, but at the time, and he was always a Parisian, I think he was a, I think he was a French citizen, but he had like British paperwork or something like one of those things that nobody cared about before nine 11, but just like, you know, red alert after nine 11, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so he couldn't get back into the country. And so my friend Danny, he called me and he said, yo, they need help in the fashion department at the fader. And I told him that you're a stylist. So you should come in and talk to him. I'm like, Danny, I'm not a stylist. That guy's, like, that guy's a fucking homie. <laughs> still my best friend to this day. Oh, oh that's yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, but I'm just like, Danny, I'm not, and I lived with him at the time. I lived with him and his brother. Uh, I'm like, Danny, I'm not a stylist, man. Like, I've never, he's just like, he just like exhales very loudly. He's like, motherfucker, you put clothes on mannequins all day long. Yeah. What's the difference? He's just like, he believes in you. Yeah, he's just yeah. like, just put them on people. You don't even have to remove their arms before you do. You know? And I was just like, <laughs> And and then yeah, and so I went in and I, and I met with them, and they were just like, "Look, you know, we we need temporary help." Uh, and I went and I stayed for four years, and that and that, for the first couple of years, I would work from you know six o'clock in the morning uh, at the at the shop doing windows, doing windows, building stuff. I had my own wood shop in the basement, so you know I build new displays and like new furniture, da da da. And then three o'clock, I go to the fader. I would be there and then, you know, we'd be there until seven or eight doing stuff. And then there'd be shows. We'd go to shows and then I'd be out till God knows when. And then I'd have to wake up at 5 a.m. to go back to work at six. And that's how I spent the first couple of years of my 20s. And it was uh, something I would never trade. Was it the best? Yeah, the best. You know, it's yeah. funny because people, really like we said, people are always asking like for this advice, like, oh, I'd love to be in fashion. And I think I think it's because it's a very romanticized thing, number one. But beyond that, it's like, listen, the, the best advice I could give you, number one, is just go take whatever job you can get that yeah, that is around. in fashion and just be around it and learn. If mm-hmm. you're good at what you're doing or if you're really driven, if it's not the place you want to stay forever, you're not going to do that. You know what I mean? Like the, you're just going to go get your you know feet wet. You're going to go meet people. You're going to go do put your hands on a bunch of stuff. The smaller the company, the better because you mm-hmm. can do way more. Um, and it's mm-hmm. just like it's just doing stuff and like you're saying and then 
not only just doing stuff, but taking things in your own hands, building your own fixtures because the ones you don't you don't see are there. That going to shows every single night because you know that like, you know, if you if you're interested in fashion, you're interested in people. You know what I mean? So you need to go out and be around people and see what's going on and what's happening in culture because that affects all of this. You know what I mean? Like, it, I completely the, agree. The if the interest is there, like that, the first step is if you're like, I want to get into it. And I don't know how. You're like, how interested are you? Because otherwise, you know, like that's that's where it starts. Is if just be insanely curious and you'll be perfectly fine. But it's like, I was it's talking, that kind of shit. I was relaying this. I did a I did a talk um, at the National Arts Club a couple of months ago. Um, oh, amazing! With my friend Nick Booster, who who you guys probably know. Yeah. Um, and he asked me, you know, we were talking about this this same topic because um, obviously he is he's a, he's an immensely popular person. Yeah. I'm on social media, and people ask him for advice all the time. And I relate to him a story. Uh, of when I when I first got to Condé Nast, um, I was working for a gentleman named Bruce Pask, who is the who was uh, up until recently the fashion director of Bergdorf Goodman uh, for Men's, and now he's the editorial director for all of Neiman Marcus. And at that time, he was the uh, fashion director of a magazine called Cargo. Um, yeah. This was back in 2006, which you know. For people who aren't familiar with that, was a was sort of like the pre-internet internet for of, of a magazine. Like it was really a shopping guide for men. It was very similar to Lucky Magazine, but it was for women. Yeah, it was hmm. the first time I ever saw like what you did, kind of like that, like almost like putting the internet into print. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah. It was a very like it was almost without me knowing it at the time. I discovered this later, but it was a very Japanese way of sort of approaching oh, yeah. absolutely fashion and. You know, Bruce and I uh, are still friendly, um, but it was my first job at, you know, at, at the mothership and it was really difficult. And I had a hard time managing when I first got there coming from, you know, like snot nosed indie publications. Um, I had a, I had a hard time managing, you know, everything that needed to be done. Now, the thing about cargo, because it was a catalog uh, in, in some regards, most magazines, be a GQ or Vanity Fair or the Fader or whatever it is, you know, you got about probably three shoots an issue, um, right? You got the cover shoot, mm-hmm. probably got two L stories, um, and then you've got a couple of either uh, front of book sections or back of book sections, you know, that yeah. that have that have some that have some, some small amount of writing and you know some 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 highlights of of different products or different you know trends or whatever, and so you know when you when you when you when you push that all together, it's probably, you know, 30 or 40 pages of fashion content per issue. Um, that was the normal workload for a fashion team at a magazine um, at that time, right? This was before mm-hmm. blogging and yada, yada, sure. yada. Um, Cargo had like 150 to 175 pages of fashion content per, per issue. Wow. It was really, really intense. Yeah. And I was the accessories editor. And so, you know, I had to touch a lot of, I had to touch everything, you know, like I covered everything from sneakers to, you know, sunglasses and watches. Mm-hmm. I had to learn about watches. It was very educational, all, all of these different things. But, you know, for someone who hadn't had to deal with quite that level of uh, coordination before, it, it was it was really daunting. And, and oh, yeah. Bruce pulled me aside after a run through that I bricked. I mean, I bricked this run through for this, for this, <laughs> for this, for this photo shoot. Yeah. And he pulled me aside and he said, he said to me, uh, you know, Josh, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if you didn't have the eye. Mm. Um, but you do now the, re- he's like, if you didn't have the eye, you can't, you can't learn that. You either have it or you don't. 
and you have it, the rest of it is being organized and working hard. So let's sit down and go through what the next couple of issues are really going to entail because I want you to get ahead of this instead of being instead of playing catch up. Yeah. And I've always thought about that and I've relayed that story. Uh, I actually had to relay it back to Bruce not that long ago because he didn't remember it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like it was but it was it was one of those moments where I was just like, OK, like because if you're going to be in fashion, like you have to have like a somewhat innate ability to see things that most people can't see um because you're looking forward you know you're yeah. trying to predict what people are going to desire in six months or two months uh you're going you're trying to figure out how things go together in pleasing and unexpected ways uh you know you have to you have to be able to you have to have that capacity and that, that's not something that everyone has if they if everyone had it we'd be out of business yeah but yeah um, if you if you do have that and you are passionate about it, then the rest of it really is about, you know, just being exposed to as many things as you can, working for people who can teach you and inspire you, uh, you know, taking the lumps. You really got to. This is not the business to get into if you think it's going to make you rich uh, off the break because it won't and it might not ever. Oh, we tell people this all the time. Like, if you're getting in this. If it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's there's plenty of success stories and we celebrate those. But, you know, how many brands do you know? And I know that uh, really had what it takes, we thought, but then didn't have what it takes. Yeah, oh, my my. Uh-huh. I wish I could always, I, you know, when people are telling me they're going to start a brand, like what what should they think about or whatever? And I said, one thing I'd love you to go do. And, and I know it's different now because of, you know, COVID kind of took a major hit on a lot of the uh, the different like trade shows and stuff. But if you go walk those piers back in the day, look at those, look at how mm-hmm. many brands there are. And I can promise you, mm-hmm. you probably only know the names of five or 10 if you're really in the know and there's hundreds Mm -hmm. there and i was like it Mm -hmm. just is not it's not just as it's not yes you have to have the eye like you said and yes then you have to be organized and then you have to be hungry and then you have to i mean it's like to get everything to hit just right it's there is a bunch of luck involved number one i think and number two it's and then the rest is like really 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 unseen hard work yeah um yeah and it's not, and it's not always like you said. I mean, it, there, you, you, that's what I mean. I think everyone like romanticizes and glamorizes fashion, but when you're just working in it, it's not, it's not. I mean, people are like, "Oh, you must go to the shows." I'm like, "Yeah, I, I've done that." And and I said, and I also go to a lot of like rented rooms in Paris that are gray with a Keurig and have a single thing of clothes, and I'm like, I got to put this together somehow, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it's like, it's not that glamorous, and it's like, and you know, you don't see the that I'm do, I'm writing all the lines, trying to get them in by the time I get back off the plane because I have stuff to do as soon as I. It's it's not it's not all of that stuff. It's a lot of luck and hard work, and and like you're saying, it's just there's so many brands and stores and everything that that don't work. Um, I, most I would yeah. say, mm-hmm. um, it's really tough. It's just really it's so and much tougher than people while. think. Some work for a while and then they don't anymore. I think that I think that you're hitting on something that's really important. And people ask me for advice quite quite frequently, um, and. You know, if you're going to start a brand or if you're going to start a business, um, what are you doing that no one else is doing? Sure. Or what are you doing better than anyone else? You know, and it could just be I'm doing this thing at a better price point. I'm doing this thing in purple and everybody else does it in black. I mean, it could yeah. be that simple. It's never that simple, but it could be that simple. Um, but really like, what are you doing? That's additive. What are you doing? That's going to create that desire in people. And for men, you know, like, what is that desire? It's really going to be probably one or two standard deviations away from what they already own. Uh, 
Sure. You know, because, but, you know, why is it better? Why is it better than what I already have in my closet? And, you know, you have to really, I mean, particularly for this side of the business, like you really need to think about like who your customer is um, and why they're going to rock with you instead of somebody else. Um, and how are you going to achieve that? And there's many different paths to achieving that. Um, and a lot of them are dead ends, you know? Yeah. And then the other thing I always tell people is, is you need to, you need to really define what, what success means to you because there's a lot of different definitions of success. You know, you look at, you look at a brand like, um, like by Waleed, right? Waleed sure. is one of the craziest talented guys I know. And his brand is incredibly niche and he wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so success for him is that he builds a nice business. He takes care of his people. He's, you know, able to live in like a nice house. He works six days a week. And then when he retires, it'll either be over or maybe somebody else will take it over. And that's it. That's success. Right. Or you could have ambition to be Raph Simmons. And that's not and like Raph Simmons online never really got that big. Sure, it's been incredibly influential, but like yeah, like in a retrospect, so, but not at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. not at the time, but it got him big jobs. You know, Jill yeah. Sander, and then you know uh, Dior. Dior, and 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 now Prada and Calvin Klein for fifteen minutes in there. Yeah, um, but you know, like <laughs> his that, that that brand Raph Simmons was successful because it made Raph Simmons successful. Yeah, right. So maybe that's your definition of success. Maybe this is your platform to get to that bigger stage if that's what your ambition is. Or maybe you want an IPO. You know, maybe that's what you want. Um, But whatever it is that you want, somewhere along the line, if you get big enough, you're going to go from being a designer or a creative or whatever to doing HR and, you know, bookkeeping, unless you plan properly towards the beginning. Yeah. And no, so that's I mean, what I try to tell people, you know. You know, when we started this, uh, me and my partner had always said, like, you know, he, he had run a very big business and then sold it. And he told me, no, listen, I don't want to, if you want to start this, I don't want to do it unless you think the opportunity to be the best is there. And, and he's like, mm-hmm. and he's, and, and I'm like, you know, the initial conversation is, well, okay, what do you mean by the best? Because mm-hmm. the best can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I don't, I never did this because I wanted to be a millionaire or a billionaire or any of that shit. I wanted to do it because I really love clothes and I really love the community around clothes. And I really like working with cool people and having cool conversations mm-hmm. and getting like the opportunity to work with artists basically, or like the way, the way I view art. That was it. I mean, that's like what I'd like to do is I'd like to continue to do exactly that work until the day I die. That's my goal. And like that, that's been the goal. And I think that, you know, you don't have to be, it's not, it's not, I think so much of it's, it's gauged financially. Like, oh, you know, like this, this store or whatever it is, or brand or whatever is huge. And it's like, okay. And that's, that's one version of success and that's, that's great for them. And if that's what they want, but that also comes with a lot of stuff that you might not want. And there's a lot of, there's an immense amount of compromise every time you add another million onto whatever you're doing. You know what I mean? And, and that's tough and, and not everyone wants to, I don't want to compromise all of my values and everything for a for a financial um, payout necessarily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like, you're saying it's really important to understand 
what is best to you? Like, what is you doing the best in inside of what what how you're going to contribute inside of a business? And that completely affects how you're going to hire people, this, the brands you bring in, what you're going to do. I mean, I think, you know, people see like expensive price tags on the things we do. And it's like, that's not the stuff that has the best markup. If you're talking about just making money, that's, that's, I'm that's in the wrong business right. then, or I'm, I'm, or I'm doing just because it's expensive does not mean I'm making tons of money. You look, it happens occasionally, but it's in this business, it's occasionally you're representing artists and you know, and that's, it's the price is reflective of that. And, um, it, it's like you said, it's, 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 it's complicated to, I mean, and I, and I think that the people that maybe suffer the most are, are things that fail is oftentimes because it's like, you don't seem to have like a, a straightforward goal. You don't have a, and it, and it, and it can be personal and it doesn't have to be either insanely lofty or nothing. It can mm-hmm. be somewhere in between. And that's, I think those are oftentimes the businesses that do better. It's because you have a very specific vision. You're, you're going for a, a specific thing. We have to, we, and I think a lot of uh, brands and stores and stuff are not, you can also get too locked in I think and not be agile and be open to that like fashion if you don't like change you're in the wrong business and beyond that like there's going to be the amount of uh, you've been in the business longer than me and I've still been in it a pretty long time at this point um, since I was pretty young and just even just the technological changes the way I view mm-hmm. clothes to buy it the way they view it, they the way the customer yeah. use it to buy yeah. it. the the expectation of the customer has changed dramatically because of big businesses like Amazon or whatever and you have to keep the adapting free, free and, shipping and free returns kill yeah. me now like but, the oh, next yeah, day yeah. you want yeah. the next day too yeah so it's just it's yeah. re- and then what next they ex- day, yeah. What the expectation is to like provide for that customer is is difficult, and also you just have that. But that's, you know, the thing I love the most personally is problem solving, and this is ninety percent of what you're doing is just what what are the what are the thirty problems I have to solve Mm -hmm. today? And you're Mm -hmm. either going to enjoy doing that, or that or that sounds like a nightmare. And if it sounds like a nightmare, then don't do then don't get in it, and just be an accountant because then you just come into work, do your thing, and you go home. And that also someday sounds amazing, (laughs) Um, but it's not what I mean, you know. And it's not if you gave me a hundred choices or a bunch of money I always say like even if we sold this I'm just going to start another one I just I love it it's just what I like to do it's what I know how to do and I don't I don't really want to I don't want to change I just want I just want to adapt to what you know the culture needs but that's tough it's really tough I I can relate to that I can relate to that very much I mean I I think like one of the most important shifts and I think you know you guys represent this is um, you know after after working for a large department store and then you know, owning my own small independent shop and then, you know, working for a big luxury online retailer after that, uh, you really, you know, like you learn a lot and, you know, yeah. the, those goalposts shift and, you know, what, what's important to you or what your version of success or what your version of the best is can, can morph over time. It should, you know, it should stay the same. But I think, you know, the what the customer really is looking for now is specificity and point of view, um, and they're willing to. There's more ability to find that at the at you know at their fingertips than there probably ever was before. But mm-hmm. you know the truth is is that if if you're going to start a company today, or if you're going to open a store today, your goal should be to try to be everything to someone rather than something to everyone. Yeah, and you can't. If you if you're trying to be something to everyone, you're not going to be anything to anybody um, unless you're of such a you know inescapable scale that sure. people have no choice, right? Um, it's 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 but it's very interesting um, 
how that shift has has really come about uh and 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 what the customers tastes have have evolved and and the education levels that they have i mean listen in a certain segment of the population right we're not talking about everybody yeah but you know their education level uh they're discerning you know about what brands they buy why they buy it you know when they buy it they care about who made it where it was made who was made by you know, and, and, and you talk about that thing about expensive and margin. I mean, I used to have this conversation with people all the time. They say, why is it so expensive? I was like, why is your car expensive? Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's it, look, there's a marketing budget for some of these mm. huge brands. I don't really, I never really sold them. I've worked with most of them. And that does certainly drive up the price to a certain degree. But I always, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, look, man, it's parts and labor. Yeah. That's what it is. And if you are willing to pay for this level of parts and labor, then you should buy this. And if not, then you should buy a Hyundai. You know? Well, it's, it's it's so tough to like. It, this always gets me a little bit because it's like whenever I'm fine. I understand. I have a responsibility as a retailer, and I do not take it lightly that I represent your brand. And I understand how hard people work to get the the stuff that they're that they're making out there in the world, and they're trusting me to like expand their story mm-hmm. and 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 make it bigger. And I, I I I don't take that lightly. But at the same time, it, it really can be frustrating when you when someone asks, "Hey, why is this so expensive?" That's a that's a perfectly fine question. Like, you can get a good $200 jacket and you can get a great, you know, $4,000 jacket. Like, there, and there's and there's a lot of room to play in between. And all of those price points are going to mean different things. And, and I'm, I, it's a good question to ask. Now, once you start explaining it, you know, a brand that just is like top of mind just because it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's on display at the store. We've had a lot of questions about it is this brand Coddle we carry. And you start explaining it and you're like, Listen, you know, they raise the yaks. They're hand making the 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 thread. They're they're doing all these super time consuming, difficult, painstaking dyeing processes, exclusively because it's important to them. And it's and and in like you just either that's going to resonate with you or it's not. But what drives me a little crazy is when hmm. it's like you would never. I couldn't if I explained art to you in this way, like a painting. You'd be like. Of course. And it's like, but for some reason with clothes, and I think it's because that everyone participates in clothing, mm-hmm. that it's not, you can't just completely excuse yourself. So you have to like push it away. It's like, well, that's insane. Well, it's like, well, it's not. It, it might be for you and that's fine. You don't have to, I don't think everyone needs to have crazy clothes if you don't want to. But it's also like, I don't understand why that explanation sometimes isn't enough for people. It's like, this is, you're, you're, you're supporting someone who's creating art and it's, and it might not be for you. And you can be like, Oh, it's way too expensive for me, but God, is it beautiful? You know, I don't look at a Van Gogh and go, Oh, I, this is, I wish this didn't exist because I can't consume it, you know? And it's like, it's, it's a little, it's a little wild that fashion gets treated so much differently than, than most other art forms. Well, I think Karl Lagerfeld said, uh, famously that fashion is a low art. Yeah. Um, Because it needs to be, it is based on commerce. Not that fine art is not based on commerce anymore. I mean, if there's a yeah. more speculative mm-hmm. market than fine art, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Um, but there is that. There is that. There is. Uh, there's a lot that resonates in what you just said uh, on on several different levels. I think that the that there is a that this is a this is a commercial business, um, and I think that I think that that clothing being so universal um, makes people dismiss it sometimes. Some people yeah, dismiss it. Um, and it is what, you know, the fast fashion industry has 
fed upon and created mountains of waste and, you know, awful conditions for working people, you know, all over the planet and, you know, belched gas and toxic chemicals into how many rivers, who, mm-hmm. who knows? Um, because, you know, the fashion industry is one of the most polluting. I mean, it's in a horse race. It's in the top five. I mean, I think it's like, you know, resource extraction, yeah. petrochemical. Um, Water consumption you know, alone would, yeah. Yeah, heavy manufacturing yeah. and then fashion, you know, like that's that. And then, and then probably food production either before or after. So, you know, it is, it, it touches, I think the, I think it touches the lives of one in six people on earth in terms of like how they make their money from the farm to the factory to the sales floor. Mm. Uh, it is, you know, responsible for, you know, trillions of dollars in revenue every year. And it is also worn by 99.99% of people on earth. Like Jane monks and some people, you know, like off the coast of Madagascar probably (laughs) don't wear clothes. Right. But like everybody else wears clothes. Yeah. Everyone. And so, so, you know, like it's, it, it is, it is, it is an immensely important business. And I think that, you know, for me, the clothes that I wear, or the clothes that I try to sell should create some amount of like joy in the wearer. Yeah. Um, they should feel happier when they're wearing it. Um, they should be wearing it for themselves primarily, but also because as I said earlier, like what it communicates about you. 100%. And part of that is your values, you know? And so I think that like, what am I spending my money on? You know, am I spending my money on cheap shit from Sheen that's going to, you know, fall apart in three days and, you know, live for a thousand years in a landfill because it's made of a hundred percent polyester. Or am I going to spend, you know, a lot of money on a pair of jeans that I really love that I'm going to wear every day until I blow out the crotch for the fifth time, you know? Um, and, and, you know, like all these other value things that you can find in between. And I think that more people are probably, self-educated and self-radicalized online to like know about and care about these things than than probably ever before but it's still a vanishingly small amount of the population that number one has the desire and number two has the disposable income to afford the things that you know you guys stock in your store uh and that we all you know that we all love and, and care about the stories from but um to be mad because something exists that you can't afford is some real fucked up way of thinking. A hundred percent. I mean, no one, no one's mad that a Ferrari exists. You know what I mean? But uh, you know, like, I, I can't afford it, but it's cool that it's there. You know what I mean? So I never understand like, what, why be upset? That's fine. That's fine. We also, I, you know, I've always tried to like, when in every type of buying I've done of, of being as inclusive as possible, given that I have values that I won't compromise mm-hmm. on in, in buying clothes. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, you know, like the, the stuff that we sell that's like, you know, in that like, you know, sub 300, sub 200 range, um, that's still cool and the silhouettes are great. And yeah, maybe the fabrics or the dyeing isn't as insane as other things, but it'll still get you in the door to starting, like starting to understand, you know, why this is important, how it mm-hmm. makes you mm-hmm. feel different than, you know, like you're saying, buying some garbage machine or whatever, you know, um, it's, it's, it, you want, I want people in the door. I want more people in the fold. The more, like, I think a lot of, 
you know, so much of fashion is always, and look, Chase and I probably feel a specific way about this being from, you know, Indiana and Ohio where fashion felt impossible for us. I I, I knew that when I got out of school, I was going to have to work 15 times harder than every other kid who grew up in LA, New York or whatever, because I just had no access to it. I didn't know as much. I didn't, you know, back, back when the internet wasn't what it is and social media wasn't even, you know, a thing yet. Like you had no way of learning outside of like, you know, the couple magazines I could like buy from the Hallmark store that was mostly women's wear. And it's like, that's just all I had, but I, but you know, so it's, it's always felt like it's had this like interesting, like gatekeeping element. And then, you know, you know, there's been a lot of disrupting designers like Virgil or there's like, and there's like the social media coming to, you know, developing into what it is now that is just torn, in my opinion, torn down those gates by leaps and bounds. I think even like a, you know, tech like Grailed that that's made designer clothing accessible to younger and, you know, audiences that don't have the access or the amount of money that it takes to buy it new. Now you're participating and that's fully Mm -hmm, acceptable mm -hmm. and that's great. And I think that, I I knew a lot of people at the time when all this was sort of developing that it was like, you could tell there was a sense in fashion of like, this is annoying. Like that. Why are like normal people involved in this now? And you're like, no, this is it's now the conversation is going to get interesting in my opinion, because now everyone can digest it. No one has an excuse to not learn things about clothes. You can watch any runway show that's basically ever existed on the internet now. Yeah. Like, there is kids. I, I worked really hard to know as much as I could about clothes and, and be one of the smarter people in the room about clothes. Um, and that was fine for a time. And now I can't keep up with these younger kids. They're, they're able to digest oh, at a yeah. rate that I cannot do it at. And they, they can be living in Idaho and know more about, you know, you know, Mew Mew and Prada than I could ever <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Because they're just they're that deep in it. And that's that's where I, I think that's going to birth a generation of people digesting fashion in a different way. And, you know, the individual and the individualism that they've injected into fashion is just going to it's going to make things so much more interesting and, and, and the conversation is going to mm-hmm. get better. And I think it's all only good, even though it might feel like a mess at times. I think it's ultimately for the for the good. It's I mean, like you said, it allows businesses like us to not have to focus on how I, how do I be everything to everybody, which I think was always a pretty impossible task and only a few are ever going to succeed at it. Now we get to be super niche and create a super niche community where, you know, that we, that we can grow and it can be super diverse and accepting because I can reach anyone anywhere, you know, like inside of our discord, we've got people in Japan in Europe, in Canada, in North America, anywhere you'd name it. There's kids in there talking about clothes and other things and and enjoying a certain type of person that that i think follows this kind of thing you know and that's and it's an interesting person and i you know it's a passionate person and i think it's it's cool that we get to that we get to do that and like focus a little bit more and so i think it's all a good thing but it's it's been a weird depending on how long you've been doing it it's been a weird journey for fashion yeah. in the past you know 10 20 years i would say and i'm sure oh, you've i mean seen it most definitely that. listen yeah. I, you were talking about putting collections online i did that you know yeah. i was the fashion editor at style.com you know like oh, i yeah which is what Vogue Runway now is. So like I, and I remember, I remember exactly what you're talking about when like, I think it was a Dolce & Gabbana show or a Versace show where they sat a couple of the fashion bloggers front row. Yeah. Tommy Khan and Susie Bubble and Brian Boy. Yeah. I was there. And oh, the fashion editors were so pissed. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so it's like I mean, I think like my love for punk rock and everything. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it was like, oh hell yeah, like fuck you guys. Now let, now now, <laughs> yeah. now let let the let the big mouths in. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Uh, and listen, but you know that this is this is this is how it happens. I mean, look, yes, you can get an education in fashion. Like yes, you can 
do that. I did that to a certain degree. You can definitely get a, an education in the, in the business of how fashion operates. And sure. I think that that's beneficial, but there's, uh, you know, the people that are, the people that really shake it are people that, um, are self-taught, you know, cause, and, and the other thing to remember is, and I think that this is, this is, this is sometimes lost in how big the business has gotten now. But like the people who are the most compelling designers are generally outsiders yeah. at one point in their life. Mm -hmm. um, they view groups or the in groups or whatever from the outside, uh, and they take inspiration from those, you know, those those um, subcultures that 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 were repudiations of the mainstream or you know people that were rejected from the mainstream, whatever that be. Mm -hmm. um sorry dog and cat fighting sorry about that. um <laughs> we love it add a little added drama yeah you're the shit out of me um <laughs> but um yeah you know like the, those are the people who have had the biggest impact as creators as designers as like you know editors probably and 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 photographers and stylists or whatever but these are people who you know how dare you be an outsider and then gatekeep. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. it's the work that matters. If somebody's willing to put the work in and they, they're educating themselves on it and they're, you know, in Ohio or, or wherever they are. And then they, they have their own voice and they have their own thing to say. And you're just like, well, you're not qualified. Well, why? Yeah. 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 <laughs> why are you not qualified? Um, because you didn't intern at, you know, in the Chanel uh, cutting on the Chanel cutting floor, and you didn't do this and do that. And you don't know this person and know that person. And so, you know, I, I agree with you guys. I, I think that, but at the same time, you know, there does need to be a critical eye put on shit. Like, there's so much bad stuff out there yeah. that, like, people need to be able to take criticism and people need to be able to give it. Um, yeah. I mean, there, that I, is lacking I, I, in fashion anymore. I mean, look, I think social media did this amazing thing that took fashion. The people that talked about fashion talked over everyone. And social media went, no, you're going to look us in the eyes when you talk to us. And I think that that is hugely impactful. But And now they've got this bigger audience than ever. And you've got more people creating than ever. Um, every kid I know is trying to start a line. You know what I mean? And, I'm, and I bet there's some that have a really important vision that isn't going to get seen. And I think that a little bit the problem is that yeah, everyone is very sensitive about critiquing. And, and beyond that, there isn't really someone with a voice. I don't feel like there's a solid voice out there right now that's really lending that classic fashion critique of being like, you know, I mean, more or less, like, this is not good and this is good and here's why. You know what I mean? And, and I think that because of the fear of, like, being too negative or hurting any small business or anything like that like I, this is i mean this is i don't i don't necessarily agree with that like i love music critique and i think that it is important and i think it's most importantly it's it, it, what this sh all of this should have allowed is the conversation you know what i mean which is like disagree with me that's mm -hmm. that's what this is for we're supposed to have a an argument i mean that's people used to go to you know, art shows so that they could argue, you know what I mean? Like in a fun way, in a fun controlled way. And, um, and I, I do think that's a little bit missing these days. It, it got so big and so broad. It's probably so hard to follow, but it, 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 I do miss classic fashion critique. I'm sure you do too. I mean, you're a magazine guy, you know, I, I, I miss that. 
Yeah, I mean, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the greatest critics that of you know of our generation, and you know they're still working. You know, Kathy Horn's still working. Tim yeah. Blank's still working. Yeah. Um, I mean, Susie Mankiw isn't really that much of a critic anymore, but she's still working. There's younger people, Angela Flaccavento, fantastic critic. Um, you know, are they able to express their full Guy Trebay? Are they able to express their full opinions to a larger or smaller extent? Yes. But I mean, you know, everything is, everything needs to be, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of factors are taken into account, but yeah, I, I agree that, but yeah, there, but like the, it takes, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage to tell somebody that their shit sucks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it has to happen. I mean, in the days where there were very powerful fashion directors at, at stores that could, you know, make or break a career. I mean, everything, as we talked about earlier, like it's better to be fragmented, but you know, I, I was the fashion director of Bloomingdale's for a number of years. And it was after Cal Ruttenstein had passed away, but I knew Cal, I'd met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was larger than life. And if he told you your brand sucked, you were done for. <laughs> you know? um, but if he said that you had talent, he could make your career. Yeah. Did it for Mark Jacobs. You know, he did it for many yeah. people. No, no shit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those those types of figures, you know, as much as, you know, the 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 number of voices and sort of the cacophony that is that is social media has some benefits. It also denigrates those those voices. And, you know, like everyone can have an opinion, but that doesn't mean you should listen to everybody's opinion. And I think that, you know, even in that blog era and now in the social media era, like, yes, there's like there's this huge explosion of people who get to, you know, share their opinion and, and do all that. But, you know, after a while, it kind of settles down to the people that are actually good at it, mm. except for in the com- except for in the comment sections. Yeah. Where do you think like, but, you know, because it's like, you're, you know, the blog era, social media era. I definitely it feels like fashion's in this interesting place where a lot of the trends that were really huge have kind of naturally and organically come to an end. And I'm not it's not it's a little hazy still right now. I feel like we're in this interesting kind of in between state. I mean, even just looking at the shows, I mean, there's great points of view, but they're maybe more wearable than ever um, and mm-hmm. less like directional. What, what, what mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but as someone who's obviously worked in a lot of different facets of this, where do you where do you think things are going now? Or do you think we're going to get this little bit of a calm era? I mean, I think we sort of deserve a little bit of a calm era. Um, Fair. Yeah, I love it. But, I mean, listen, the, the social media did a lot of things, but one of the things that it did was it decoupled image from meaning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, so people are able to take references from any era, any time, and look at them without context. Um, and, you know, mi- mission mash them together. And I think that, you know, when you look at the trend cycle, you know, before the printing press, it took 400 years for something to go from in fashion to out of fashion to in fashion again. Yeah. Right. We're talking about like the yeah. length of shoes or, you know, sure. the, how high the collar on a, on a, on a Flemish Royals, you know, whatever. Like that's how long it took. And then, yeah. you know, television, radio, television, da, da, da. It started speeding up, and and now I think that the one one of the things that the internet has done or social media has done is just completely break that cycle apart. It doesn't exist anymore. Trends come and go so fast as to not even exist, and so you sort of entered a period of time where 
you can kind of choose your own adventure because everything that's ever been in style ever is all in style now. Yeah, yeah. Now that takes a really brave person to, you know, to to sort of like carve their own channel through all all that noise. Um, But you could look at somebody who's just dressed like, you know, a punk rock Victorian alien and be like, yo, that person looks cool. And that person can be anywhere that they want to be. You know, they would look, they would look fine in a McDonald's. They would look fine at a, at a, at a, at a, you know, five-star restaurant. They would look fine at any place. Right. Because like the modes of acceptance, like the, like the, the meaning of a uniform have really sort of broken down to the point where I think a lot of folks are exhausted. And I do think that there's sort of this return to understated, I mean, quiet luxury, you know, drill another hole in my head, quiet luxury, but like this (laughs) idea that like, you can be understated and elegant and be well put together. And that's enough of a message, yeah. you know, like that to me is not a bad palate cleanser from the maximalism that we had, um, right at the end of COVID. Yeah. You know, when everybody was just like, yo, I'm going to put this shit on, yeah. you know, yeah. they had <laughs> no matter the cost. <laughs> Yeah. No matter the cost and no matter how many layers, like I'm gonna wear three pairs of pants to this motherfucker. Yeah, one yeah, of them's yeah. gonna be green, yeah, yeah. one of them's gonna be pink, <laughs> yeah. and one of them's gonna be sequined. You know what I mean? It's just like, yo, you only have two legs. Why yeah. are you wearing three pairs of pants? Anyway. It's cool. I mean, it's cool to watch people Uh, like kind of like go into the into their jazz era and just be like, "Look, let's strip it down and do and be as creative with you as you can with as little as you can." Uh uh I mean, I've already started to see it. Yeah. Let's be in this box, you know, like, and the same thing, you know, like I was not a writer by training. I had fantastic editors. Um, like the first person to ever edit my copy back at the fader was Will Welsh, who's now the global editorial oh, director. Yeah. Of yeah, so cool. Um, um, and, and still a good friend, uh, Mobilaji, uh, worked there with us too. And then actually Choma Nandi, who's now the editor of, of British Vogue, uh, replaced me when I left the Fader. She's oh, been cool. working at a magazine called no Trace, way. which was, which is, she was another great magazine back then. So when I left, uh, they hired her to, to be my replacement. And, um, I say all that to say this, that the most important thing that Will ever like tried to instill in me as a writer was, strip it back bro you don't need to use all these words yeah like why are you using all these words there's you got five words here when two will do and you know that's that's the editing process and i think that that's why and editors have always been so important to the fashion process and now i guess that's more in the realm of social media than than before but like the best stylists are not working on collections you know, whether they have their own, which happens, um, or whether they're working in tandem with, you know, talented designers to really help distill down the message um, of, a, of a runway show or a collection um, or a merchandiser, you know, it, it can really help with that, too. And I think that a lot of that, a lot of that used to happen after the show. And now it has to happen during the show yeah. because there is no other place for it to happen. Like cause the. Uh, as the as the as the landscape have gotten more dispersed and as the budgets have shrunk um and as the audiences for traditional media or whatever have shrunk then you know the the message really does end up coming from the brands and then the interpretation comes from the customers and social media yeah. um and that middle layer 
isn't as impactful as it used to be. And so a lot of it has to happen at the outset rather than, uh, and so that's why I think, you know, there's plenty of ways that that can manifest itself. And right now I think it's manifesting itself as this sort of like paired back. Let's, let's do as many different variations from inside this box as we can. And we know that like the best design comes from constraint. Yeah. Um, you know, from solving those problems, as you said earlier. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's something, there's something to that. I'm making this all up as I go along, but it, kind of feels like it makes sense while i'm saying it so no i mean when, when, when we when we like uh when we like try to handle problems around here it's always been kind of a thing um you know sometimes because we were small and now that we're bigger it's like a lot of like hey let's let's not just buy something to fix the problem let's not just hire someone to fix the problem let's let's go here's the box that we're in and let's just see what we can do with nothing first and let's get it as far along as we can before we need to do it because if nothing else you're going to learn something from being in that box and i've seen so many brands do exactly what you're describing which is just like we only do things in this color and this color and we're going to be as creative as humanly possible inside of this box we've created and i really think that like creativity really blossoms from being like like pulling things back. So, so I, I totally agree. I think that maybe pulling things back like that, that we that we're kind of seeing this like much more like wearable version of fashion that's happening right now will likely be a lot of designers boxing themselves in a little and doing a lot more with a lot less. And I think that can be really exciting for the next, the, I mean, I like this version too, but like, I think it'll be really exciting for, for the next version of, of what fashion blossoms. But actually, Will Welch actually wrote this great forward in the GQ not that long ago that where it really, he really talked about how important all of the eras are. Like, and I think that I think about yeah. that a lot. Like, this is great. This is great. And what'll, what'll happen next will be great. I just, I just get excited about what, what we're going to do next because, like I said, it's, I, I love the change. That's why I got into this. I like that we switch things up every, yeah. you know, six months. Things are different. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. The only constant is change. And, and, you know, the truth is, is that the human, the human, um, condition to solve a problem is generally the first the first the first thought is to add right yeah yeah, how do i solve this problem by adding something that will then solve this problem right and then i think that the opposite way is harder but eventually you know can be much more rewarding um and i think that that's uh that's that may be what we're seeing now um and will's right you know like every era matters especially when you think about menswear in particular, like, yes, there can be like big surges in the trend where everybody's like, Oh, you know, I'm dressing like a lumberjack now. Or like, oh, I'm doing this or that. Um, but when I was working at Esquire, uh, one of my co-editors was a guy named Rich Dormant, who is now, he's the editor in chief of men's health now. Mm. Um, but anyway, he was the style editor at, at Esquire under, um, under the um under at the time when i was when i was there and you know one of the things he said to me that i thought was really insightful was he was just like you know in menswear trends don't die they just go into the toolbox oh that's great yeah that's so you know so it's like you could pull out a little bit of preppy and add it to your work where you could do this you could david granger gave us a lot david granger was the legendary editor-in-chief of of esquire and he Mm -hmm. was he was my boss when, when we were there um, and he gave us a lot of leeway because he was just like, I don't understand this shit. You know, you guys go do it. I'm going to worry about, you know, the politics pages and, mm-hmm. the, and the, and you know, the, uh, the actors and the act, you know, like that was his thing. And, and he, yeah. 
and he kind of let us do our thing. And I worked under a guy named Nick Sullivan, who's still there. He's the creative director yeah. of Esquire uh, now. And but Rich said that to me, and I thought that that was really, I thought it was really, really insightful. Um, and we always tried to remind ourselves of that because just because something's come and gone doesn't make it any less valid. Yeah. Um, when you think about music, you know, when you think about all different, you yeah. know, all different art forms, um, if something is good, it's good and it's good forever. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that there's a lot, I think that there's a lot that can be taken from different eras of fashion. And if you're creative and if you have your own sense of sense of style and your own point of view, like you can really create your own identity out of it. And that is the thing that I continually find exciting. I mean, because clothing is about many, many things, but at the end of the day, for me, it's about identity. And 100%. when you decide who you want to be, it's not forever. And you can look back on it and cringe for, at some points, you know, <laughs> but like just to continually try new things and to reinvent, you know, yourself. And it can, and it doesn't have to be like a wholesale reinvention. It can be like, you know, a fugue on a melody. It doesn't have to be like crazy different, but you are, uh, that's exciting. And, and it's like, you are someone who I, I would admire and I would, and I would hope to maybe learn something from if that's how you carry yourself. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, this is, it's been a really good conversation. I, and yeah. I have a, I have a specific way that I gauge these, how, how a conversation is going. And if I wrote, we wrote down like a gang of notes, I didn't ask a single question on them. <laughs> so it, uh, the conversation <laughs> obviously went great. Yeah. That's, that's how I judge well, Do you want to so. hit me with some, do you want to hit me with some rapid fire ones right, right here at the end? Uh, Let's I'm, I'm see. You know, I have one. I have one specific one that I wanted to get to more than anything, and for the rest, they're bigger picture, and it was more about personal style. And I'd love to have you back on to discuss at some point. But I had one thing. I I read in an interview, and then I heard maybe on a podcast. I heard you, and and we and we discussed it a little bit. But you talked about uh, like you pay for what you get, and and I've heard you say it, like it came up in a couple of different spots. And I just wanted to ask you about that because I think it's so important to like what we do. And I just wanted you, I just wanted you to expand on that a little bit because it's it's such a it's such a concise thing. But it's like, but I just wondered like what it means to you and and why and why yeah, you yeah. bring it up regularly. I think that there's a I think that there's a disconnect in in the value. Um, attributed to fashion products and i think that that is partially the fault of the industry itself and you can look at things like the markdown cycle and promotionality and mm -hmm. and all you know okay amazon and, and zara or whoever and you know they've been able to do certain things because of scale that other people can't do um, and what we've done in our business is an immense disservice to ourselves by trying to compete against <laughs> yeah. the lowest common denominator. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And people don't understand the value of what it is that they're buying. They don't understand the true cost of it either mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of those costs are hidden. Um, what's the carbon cost of shipping by air? Because, you know, sea freight takes too long. Um, what's the cost of, you know, unfair labor practices in um, Bangladesh uh, to their healthcare system. What is the cost of lax um, environmental regulations in, in, you know, some part of South America that allows, you know, um, 
iodine to you know leak into the into the water system. These are mm-hmm. costs, mm-hmm. and the end customer does not pay for those costs. Um, that's one side of it. The other side of it is is that things that are done with integrity, things that are done by people who are well compensated for their skills and time, things that are done in ways that are not the easiest, and they might be the old way because that was the only way, and there might be an easier way to do it now, but it's still the best way to do it. Those also have costs. Um, and so when you are looking at what the purchases that you make are, um, and this is across everything, this is, you know, food and, and shelter and everything. And yeah, people can only afford what they can afford. Right. Mm. But, you know, when you think about how you spend your money that you've earned or inherited, Stolen. <laughs> uh, but when you spend your money, you are going to get exactly what you pay for. Mm. And maybe that, maybe what's important to you that you're paying for is a big logo that makes you feel like you're part of something that yeah. you saw somebody else wearing and that's important. Or maybe what's important to you is the performance qualities of something. It's waterproof, it's Gore-Tex, it's seam sealed. Maybe that's important. Uh, maybe wearing something that's in a really unique fabric that's that's got these colors and it's custom or whatever, um, that's important to you. Or maybe just something to keep me warm because it's cold outside. That's all that's important to me. Mm-hmm. But when you pay for that, you're getting what you pay for. And you just need to decide what's important to you as an individual and how you spend your money because how you spend your money ends up influencing how all of these things happen. And so if I'm going to spend my money and I'm going to get what I pay for, what I want to pay for is honesty in manufacturing. What I want to pay for is integrity of product. What I want to pay for is to perpetuate that these are things that are worth it and that are good. Um, and that we should all strive for. And so hopefully those few purchases that I make can help nudge the world in the direction that I want it to go in. Now, I'm not the type of person who thinks that you can be a consum- that you need to be a consumer to be an activist. Okay? I'm not saying that. This isn't yeah. Tom's shoes. This isn't any of that. But what I am saying is, is that every time you open your wallet to make a decision in our business and in many others, you're voting with your dollars. And what you vote for is convenience, price, or integrity, and innovation, and and good ideas. And that's what I think I mean when I say you get what you pay for. Good shit, man. Damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we yeah. asked one more. <laughs> Good shit, man. Josh, it is a real honor to talk to you, man. Not joking around at all. Yeah, I, I, I followed your career a long time, man. You know, I've always been inspired by your personal style, the stuff you've done in fashion. It's 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 really cool to get a chance to talk to you for an hour. I, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. For real. Well, it's my pleasure. And you guys keep fighting a good fight out there. Next time I'm in Colorado, I'm coming to see you. you have Please to. do, you man. Have yeah, to. that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you, man. And uh, you, yeah, you, you take it easy. We'll be in touch. If you ever need anything from us, you get in touch. Okay, I appreciate that. Vice versa, right. too. 
Yeah, of course, of course, man. All right, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye, bye, bye Midler, bye, Turkey. <laughs> See you guys <laughs> later, buddy. Okay, guys. Bye. Have a good day. Yeah, you, you too, too man. Peace. Peace.